Hello, and welcome back to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a great one. I am so happy for us all that I was finally able to get Dr. Mike T. Nelson, creator of the Flex Diet, onto the Wise Athletes Podcast. Dr. Mike is a physiology PhD who knows a ton about restoring and leveraging metabolic and physiologic flexibility to drive athletic performance and resilience, along with the added bonus of improving body composition. I can tell you from personal experience, Dr. Mike's Flex Diet program is a game changer for the older athlete. Over the last three months, I have added 10 pounds of muscle while losing significant body fat. And I am pleased to report that after 35 years of wishing, I have finally restored the six-pack abs that I last had in college. Oh yeah. I guarantee this episode will be worth your while. All right, let's talk to Dr. Mike. Welcome, everybody. I am so pleased, finally, to have Dr. Mike T. Nelson on the podcast. And you will be too, I promise. Dr. Mike is one of those guys. He knows stuff that we want to know about how to be fit and strong and healthy. And he is going to share some of that stuff with us. Unfortunately, not all of it, because it's only going to be a, a one-hour podcast. And in fact, I've got a particular set of things that I'm going to ask him about. You're mm. going to be glad you have tuned in today. So let me just start by Dr. Mike. Welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, guys. appreciate being here. Yes, yes. And uh, Glenn, Thank you Indeed. for joining us as well. And how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm excited to hear too. I always like getting new information. It's always good. Going to be a lot of it today. Good. Okay. So Dr. Mike, some of our audience will not be familiar with you as unexcusable sure. as that is. Uh, you've got an amazing body of work. I don't want to take up too much of our little limited time together talking about your background, but if you could just tell us a little bit about all those letters behind your name and how <laughs> did you come to know so much? about how an athlete's body works. Yeah, basically because I was a horrible athlete and I had to figure out a bunch of shit for myself is basically the short, short version of the story. That's correct. Um, started lifting. I was a six foot three person after puberty, weighed 156 pounds and looked like an eel-shaped rake and thought maybe I should do some lifting stuff, which is my first year of college. And like most people, probably did everything wrong for at least well over a decade, probably longer. Um, as a kid, I thought it was normal that some kids like myself just get hit in the face with balls and are unathletic. And later I learned, no, that's uh, actually not normal to be that bad. It's like there's <laughs> definitely different levels. There's elite freaks. But if you're like four standard deviations below normal, that's not the where you want to be either. Uh, turns out I had some uh, eye issues, didn't see in 3D. I had some developmental stuff like scoliosis. And then when I was a kid, I actually had an open heart surgery. I had an atrial septal defect when I was four and a half. So if you think back on all the developmental stuff you go through from ages one through five, I kind of skipped over because I couldn't really move around a lot because I had uh, oxygenated and deoxygenated blood mixing together uh, in my heart, which I had surgically repaired. Uh. So... Yeah, and it's kind of funny, like you look back and you're like, oh yeah, no wonder I worked for a cardiovascular uh, medical device company for about 10 years. Uh, went to school, did a Bachelor of Arts, Natural Science, minor in chemistry, minor in mathematics. Did two years postgraduate work in engineering, then went to Michigan Tech University for a uh, master's in mechanical engineering. I was looking primarily at biomechanics stuff, but I ended up doing research on how to zap uh, monkeys with microwaves. <laughs> So how to create a big microwave transmitter for um, testing that they did validate on monkeys by Brooks Air Force Base. Hmm. I was just creating a computer-generated model on it. 
uh, was later used as a ray gun, supposedly in the military. A ray gun. It's called the active denial system. The thought process is put it at a crowd of people. Feels like your skin is being burnt by a light bulb because it's in the gigahertz range. So there's not much penetration depth. And then the people will disperse. So in theory, it was supposed to be a non-lethal uh, crowd control. And it's been out for a while, but not really ever used. There was something that came out like a couple months ago about uh, they used the word ray gun again. So I think that kind of deters anyone from using it because they can imagine the media headlines of, you know, XYZ organization uses ray gun on, you know, protesters, you know, it sounds yeah. pretty bad. And yeah, so I did uh, after that, um, started training people in 2006 officially, uh, which is the first time I actually did it for money. Probably did it for five years before that for free, which was a disaster. I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, nobody did anything at all because there was like no skin in the game on either party, which is my own fault. I uh, decided to go back to school. I did five years in a PhD program in biomedical engineering. Decided I did not want to do that the rest of my life, so I dropped out and then went over to exercise physiology. And oddly enough, got stuck doing more math there, which is the reason I left the PhD program in biomedical engineering. And then in exercise phys, the PhD program there, I worked on heart rate variability and metabolic flexibility. Excellent. Yeah. So from there, I did a bunch of certifications. I did, um, so I was one of the first Z Health master trainers. I did the RKC for a while, Russian kettlebell certification, was assistant for them for a while. And then currently, I'm a certified strength and conditioning uh, expert or certificate through the NSCA and certified. Uh, International Society of Sports Nutrition uh, Nutritionists, or CISSN, through them. Excellent. Well, and you're not 150 pounds anymore. I, I I've seen uh, pictures of you. I can't no. actually can only see you from the neck up in this and what we're looking <laughs> at here. But uh, the the weightlifting worked, eh? Yeah, I did. I mean, the highest I ever got up to was I did a novice strongman competition. So I was like, I just wanted to see what was the highest I could get up to, which was 245. Kind of. A lot of that was fat, and I was <laughs> going through the PhD process, which I wouldn't recommend. Um, but it took me, I would say, after I did stuff more intelligently, it took three years to go from 156 to 185. It took about another three years to get over 200 and kind of beyond there. So like I said, I've been as high as 245. Right now, I've kind of gone back down. I was as low recently as 212. Right now, I'm like 222. Uh, probably something we may talk about, I think, as you get older, I think I'm prioritizing where's an easy body comp to hold that's maybe a little bit lower than where I have been in the past. I think that's always off-weighed by, I don't want to count actually everything in my life to get significantly leaner either. So I think it comes down to a priority of where's a spot you can kind of hang out at that's relatively easy with all your health markers, your bloods, everything else are in line. And then from there, you can kind of decide eh, if I want to get leaner, I know what it takes. It's probably going to be a little bit more effort. And then just, it's okay to not prior <laughs> prioritize that and have other priorities in life for a while too. Sure. Sure. Well, great. Well, thanks very much for that. Yeah. Um, I should disclose here to the audience that I've spent a good chunk of the last few months learning a lot about your stuff. Cause I signed up and oh, have completed your flex diet certification and I've been using those teachings in my own life with really fabulous results. I'm really quite pleased. I've been adding muscle. I've been losing body fat. I'm feeling better. I'm sleeping better. 
And I don't want to jump too far ahead to our, in our conversation here, but I just want to say I can speak to how well your program works. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And good job for putting the effort into it too. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Okay. So let's just, let's talk about our episode today. Our Wise Athletes is for older athletes, which makes sense because Glenn and I are older athletes. Mm -hmm. And uh, while Glenn comes into this with a pretty um, deep knowledge base, I wanted to do this so that I could learn about you know stuff I wanted to know for myself. How could I slow the progression of the symptoms of aging on my athletic performance? Heck, my life in general. You know, I mean, I'll just say I don't like the idea of getting old <laughs> and I'm happiest <laughs> when I can forget my age because yes. which ha happens only when my body is working well. It's working like it used to when I was younger. And so it had never, this idea of metabolic and physiologic flexibility, which you preach and teach had never really occurred to me before. And so, but it didn't take me long to kind of grasp that gosh, you know what? That's sort of like how my body worked when I was a young person. Yes. <laughs> and it, I kind of lost those abilities. I don't know whether it's because of the abuses I put on it with the things I was eating or my feeling that sleep was something I would do when I was dead or, or just getting older has those things. But I have to say, I think that your concepts of this metabolic and physiologic flexibility are perfect for the older athlete who wants to reset the clock. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. Thank you for that testimonial. I'll make sure to put that on our website. But yeah, I mean, it's, I kind of fell into metabolic flexibility because it was an area that I had to study for my PhD like 14 plus years ago, 13 plus years ago, I started looking at it. And when it was first explained to me, I was just like, oh, that, that, that's the whole concept on how you should use fat really well and use carbs and transition. I'm like, why is this like a thing? And then I'm like, oh, I wonder if it disappears as we get older or if we get into uh -huh. a disease state. Oh, it does. Oh, okay, cool. Um, oh, we can change it. Oh, okay. So then it becomes a way of explaining a concept that's a legitimate actual concept. And then as you age, it tends to go away. And so you look at people who are younger, they're like, well, how can they eat everything and keep body comp and have their health be good? And it's like, oh, well, and then I started working with clients. I'm like, oh, yeah, so that's what most clients want to do, right? I mean, the question most people never ask that they, you know, the average person walking around the street wants to know is, you know, how crappy can I eat and still look good and perform good and feel good? You know, no one ever asks, like, you know, how much broccoli should I eat or chicken breast? You know, it's like, yeah, sometimes you have to do certain things depending upon where you're at. Um, so, yeah, so it actually fits in perfectly with that. And there's some good theoretical work with physiologic flexibility. As we get older, we're kind of losing some of these uh, buffer zones and capacity over time. The good part is that a vast majority of all of that, at least the current data, suggests that they're very trainable. Even something that people think like strength, right? People say, oh, it's just normal. I'm going to get weaker as I get older. It, to, to some degree, that's kind of true, but a vast majority of that is just not doing it, right? So they've done studies with people in their 80s who haven't never really weight trained before, and they actually gained strength at the same rate as someone who is in their 20s. Ah. Now, the caveat is that is a rate of strength increase, 
and the the where they're starting is really really low right so they may be barely curling a soup can to start so strength levels yes very very different but it's almost like if you give the body the right stimulus you almost never lose the ability to adapt you know the rate of adaptation and where you get to will be different um, but you never lose that ability to still respond to the stimulus yeah well, gosh, I, I mean, we don't have time to do your whole program here, but I wonder if we could give people some of the, you know, the highlights sure. that, uh, you know, maybe even a few uh, freebies, like you should definitely do this, you yeah, know, yeah, no and, and see if that helps. Yeah. I mean, so what I did with like the flex diet was I had to try to figure out how do I rank all these interventions? Right, because the internet has no shortage of you know do this, eat this, you know snort broccoli sprouts, whatever the hell you're <laughs> supposed to do now, and it's it's hard to figure out. Okay, where do you start? So initially, I said, okay, this is good. I'll just rank these things by physiologic effect, right? So we're putting the things that have the big physiologic effect, you know, towards the beginning, things that have less effect later, and then I realized I'm like, well, that's good, but. In practice, some of the things that have a high physiologic effect are really, really hard to do, right? Like sleep, right? Most people agree that, yes, I should sleep more. I should increase the quality of my sleep. But uh, from just having client conversations with sleep, especially three, five years ago, I'd rather pound my head through a wall because the conversation at the end always ended up being, okay, so I'm paying you a lot of money and you're telling me that I'm not supposed to chill out and watch Netflix with my spouse for two hours at night. And that's the only time we have together. And you're telling me just to go to bed and go to sleep. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. You can only get your quality so high. And if it's four hours, you know, you're just short. So I realized that there's a psychological ability to change too. That was a lot of times the limiter. So I said, okay. So I created a term just called coaching leverage which is the physiologic response times the client's ability to change. And then I use that as the intervention scale. So sleep, even though on a one to 10 scale, like about a nine or a 10 for physiologic impact, client's ability to change was literally a one. It was like the last conversation I wanted to have with anyone. So that actually ended up being number eight. Um, but like protein, however, was number one, like high physiologic effect, especially with aging athletes, which you can talk about. And most people, once they got through their head that they're like trying to get better body composition and lose fat and you want to get them to eat more food, which they think is just crazy, <laughs> um, it's relatively easy to do. Takes a little education, obviously takes some habits, takes some practice, but was very doable for a lot of people. So it turns out protein ended up being the first uh, intervention just because of high physiologic impact and high ability for clients to actually do the changes. Got it. So the key is not just knowing what to do, but figuring out a way to make it sustainable. Because if right. you're giving, because somebody might be really motivated and they could change their sleep for two weeks. Right. But eventually, if they're not speaking to their spouse ever, that is <laughs> not going to work out. Yeah. And I mean, the reality was the hard part with like the sleep thing is it literally comes down to almost a value judgment upon their life, right? Because before COVID and stuff, it's like, I have an hour drive to get to work. I have an hour drive to get home. I have to go to work. I'm not changing my job. I'm not moving my house. There's only so fast I can get there. And you end up with just a limited amount of time. Oh crap. Now you're telling me I need to do this weight training stuff. I need to do some cardiovascular things. I don't want my wife to hate me. You know, so it, it, it's very limited, right? And it's unrealistic for me as a coach to be like, 
oh, screw it, sell your house, quit your job just so you can sleep more, right? I mean, that's not realistic, <laughs> right. you know, but there's other things like, okay, so maybe we'll just talk about eating more protein. Let's, let's start there because those are things you can do. You're already eating. You have the habit of putting food in your mouth. We're just changing what is the thing you're putting in your pie hole. And oh, lo and behold, that it can have a massive effect too. That's awesome. I've always been a big protein proponent, not not nice. for any particular reason other than I like how it tastes. And that's good. You know, yeah, I could see how people you might find that certain people would object to like if your program was be sure to eat a lot of fat. And somebody grew up like, oh, fat is evil. I don't want to eat a lot of yeah. fat. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, I, I'm gonna have to go to confession or something. I can't yeah. do that. Uh, but pro I don't know anybody. Well, you know, maybe some, maybe certain kinds of protein people have problems yeah. with, but you know, there's all kinds of protein. Yeah. There's lots of options. And even now protein has been kind of sort of demonized, I'd say on the edges, you know, Oh, don't get too much protein and it's going to activate mTOR and give you cancer and all these sorts of crazy longevity claims, which I would say for the most part are kind of unfounded. And as yeah. people age, they actually need more protein. Right. right. So they did a study, I think it was uh, Tang, and they gave young people in their 20s, they gave them 20 grams of protein, and they measured with some fancy stuff like what happens afterwards. Like what is their response to protein? It's called muscle protein synthetic response. And then they gave older people, I think it was age 71, the same amount of protein. And what they found was it was dramatically less effective, right? So the muscle building or the anabolic effects were quite a bit less. The older people in the group, granted the older people were average age of 71, they needed twice the amount of whey protein. So they actually needed a 40 gram dose to get the same acute response as the younger people in the study. Wow. Um, so as you age, it's more important to get more protein. And unfortunately on average, like if I looked at what my grandma ate, man, she eats like way less protein as she got older. So people are kind of doing the inverse of the direction they need to go. Yeah, I'm I'm actually uh, working on my mom right now, trying to get her to eat more protein, and yeah, you know, just getting her to do like 20 grams a day is a big step. Yeah, it can be hard. I mean, I talked to my mom for years, and it was a couple of years ago. Finally, she's like, "Hey, I, I had a, a high protein breakfast." I was like, "Oh, great! What did you have?" She's like, "I had an egg." <laughs> I'm like, like an egg, like a single egg. She's like, "Yeah." I'm like, well, that's seven grams of protein. You're going in the right direction compared to the toast with butter, which has almost nothing, you know, so it, it, you're going in the right direction, which is good. <laughs> yeah. You could probably have two eggs if you want and get really crazy, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, cool. Uh, it, and I guess uh, another thing people worry about, maybe you can respond to this, is the, it, it used to be people wanted to uh, get into heaven, but now what they want to get into is autophagy. Yeah. And, uh -huh. um, if you're eating protein, or I guess maybe if you're just eating anything, you're you're turning off your body's, you know, autophagy program. But uh, right. I guess uh, I guess that's really more theoretical than any uh, being real evidence about that. What do you think? Yeah, it's it's so hard with those things because is it a real process? Yes, right. So autophagy is just kind of the fancy word for recycling kind of misshapen and misfolded proteins, right? So it's your body's way of kind of cleaning house. And it is true, if you do a longer fast, does that go up? And by a fast, meaning not consuming any things containing calories? Uh, yes. So 
if we eat more protein, does that slow down the autophagy process? It does. But does that mean that we need to be super worried about autophagy and the only way to do it is to not consume any protein, which is probably not true. Um, there's some interesting stuff with exercise, especially pretty exhaustive, high intensity exercise uh, will increase rates of autophagy or what's called AMPK also, they're slightly different uh, functions. Um, but in that study, AMPK was elevated for five days. Um, there's other studies with just off-the-shelf exercise itself will upregulate autophagy. A AMPK and autophagy are a little bit different, but they're kind of lumped together a lot of times. Um, just standard old exercise will upregulate uh, markers of autophagy. And this was even with people consuming food before exercise, right? So it's something that's always kind of going on. Exercise is a really big regulator of it. Um, so I think people should just start there and probably not be so worried about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, maybe, maybe try to work a, a fast into their schedule periodically. Yeah. Uh, that's probably I a good thing. I think that can be useful. I mean, I'm a fan of, of fasting. My preference is to take work up to one longer day of about 24 hours, not consume any calories. Again, assuming your goal is, eh, maybe I'm trying to hedge my bets a little bit towards longevity, body comp, better use of fat, those types of things. Yeah, I think that's kind of a, a fair approach, easy way to keep calories down. So yeah, I've recommended that for, for quite a while. The downside is, as you guys know, people hear that and they go, oh, he just said fasting for a long time is good. So I'm going to do like a seven day water fast because that's got to be so much better. And it's like, no, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. And maybe we'll find out that that's useful in the future for certain things. But uh, right now it's like super, super theoretical. Right, right. Okay, so let's go back to the the flexibility thing because uh, yeah. there's, there's really a, many dimensions to it. The protein for hanging on to your muscle, that's so that you've got the flexibility to be strong when you want to be strong. And, and then there's other advantages to having more muscle on your body. What else? There's the in the use of fuels, right? So you want to be able to burn your body fat when you're not eating and and not have and not be going crazy with hunger uh, mm -hmm. when you're when you're doing that. Uh, but you also want to be able to burn carbohydrates when you're doing high intensity activities what are some of the other areas or variables or elements yeah so if you were to simplify metabolic flexibility to three components uh one of them would be exactly what you said uh make sure you can use fat to the highest degree as a fuel second would be make sure you can use carbohydrates to the highest degree as a fuel and then third would be how fast can you switch back and forth uh, so you're correct so if we're just hanging out having this conversation and fat is probably going to be a better fuel for it just because we don't need high rates of ATP, right? So cellular energy, we're just hanging out. It doesn't require a whole lot. And there's some, it's even more accumulating health data showing that using fat at rest is probably better than carbohydrates. Now we can use carbohydrates at rest. So if we consume a very large, you know, four bowls of white rice or whatever, then yeah, you want to be able to switch to start burning through some of those carbohydrates, even though you're at rest. When you exercise, as you mentioned, high intensity exercise, you want the ability to use carbohydrates because that's gonna be the main fuel for that type of exercise. And then we want the ability to switch back and forth. So once I'm done with uh, high intensity exercise, 
I want the ability to switch back and to start using fat again. When I start to do high intensity exercise, I want the ability to upregulate and use carbohydrates to maximize speed, performance, and power. Right, right. Well, cool. So that's that's a really big one, uh, and and one that I have a lot of experience with, just because I've in my life, I don't know, genetically and maybe diet has encouraged it. But I I became poor at burning fat, and then I actually went on a ketogenic diet and mm-hmm. and really suffered going through adapting to that. But once I adapted to it, even though I only stayed on it for four months, four years later, I'm still a good fat burner. So it nice. it really changed me in a really good way to allow me to, so I could, I can do a 24 hour fast w- essentially with no suffering. Very cool. But any longer than that, and, and then I start to feel it. But the, the problem is, so why did, so why did I go off of a ketogenic diet was because my legs felt dead when I wanted to do some high intensity. So I got mm-hmm. ride my bike and I could ride all day long. But if I wanted to go up a hill hard, it was like, oh my God, what has happened to me? Yeah. And, you know, and, and some people might say uh, that I just hadn't stayed, I hadn't adapted well enough to it, but whatever, uh, you know, <laughs> my life wasn't long enough to, to be able to get through all yeah. of that. I mean, you can say that about anything, right? It's like I, one of the, debates about performance in a ketogenic diet. And I've got clients who've used a ketogenic diet. I'm not necessarily against it. It just depends on what are your goals, right? So one of the the arguments is that, well, you just didn't do a ketogenic diet long enough. It's like, yeah, you can say that, right? And it, it's kind of a true thing. But I'm like, if you need to do, say, a ketogenic diet for a year, in my brain, if you are a competitive athlete where speed and power sport you're doing, even biking, is a priority that better be one hell of an adaptation after a year <laughs> right because you've kind of given up some of your training now if yeah. that's to increase your body's use of fat as a fuel and then you're going to you know transition back to using carbohydrates kind of a periodized approach then yeah, that kind of makes sense to me um but again it goes back to i don't know if there's anything that magically that happens at the end of a year or a year and a half uh, we do have some, you know, outliers that have been doing it for a long period of time, and they do seem to see some more, I'd say, semi-quasi permanent changes, and can go back and add more carbohydrates and do okay. But those people have been yeah. doing it for many years, and they're also freaks and outliers too. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that must be one of those freaks and outliers. Glenn qualifies for all of those uh, attributes <laughs> nice. um, at, at every level. But I, I think the most exciting thing about it that I like more than anything else is that I used to go on these long bike rides. And of course, after about 70, 80 miles, I was bonking pretty bad, even with food. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, I always used to come home through Sausalito and there's lots of restaurants and it's afternoon, evening, and I'm smelling pizza and I'm mm. smelling you know, steaks and, and, and Italian food. And I get home and I'm, I'm ravenous. And now I'll do 70, 80, 90 mile, 100 mile rides and I get home and I feel full. Hmm. I'm not hungry at all. And that's because I'm burning carbs. I've been burning, I mean, the ketones all day long. And I, I, I'm so full of ketones, it's like, I don't want to eat any food. And that's a, that's a problem because I should eat food after a long ride. But um, I love the flexibility now and that I don't have to feel like I don't carry any food with me when I do long rides now. Because my body is able to burn the fat, which is great. So yeah. I love that flexibility side. It's great. I, I mean, I think that makes sense, right? So the first question I ask people, they're like, hey, should I do a ketogenic diet? I'm like, what's your goal? Like, are you dissatisfied with what you're doing now? If they're mm-hmm. like, no, man, they're like, you like, I can go out and do a hundred mile ride. It's great. Everything's wonderful. Uh, I don't feel that hungry. I'm like, oh, keep doing it. Then why would you do 
<laughs> if you don't yeah. have any other impetus to change, your blood numbers are all good, everything's fine, then cool, just keep doing it. Um, in the beginning, when I first started this diet, I had no energy. I literally had no energy. And um, if I were to carb load, I would have energy, but then I'd be kicked out of keto. So it was kind of a catch-22. But now it seems like um, I can have any kind of carbohydrate I want to. My body will shuttle back and forth from fat to carbohydrates, which is great. So now I have that flexibility. I have the energy when I need it. Um, I have the long distance that I want it. And so that's the part to me that is wonderful. Excellent. I do agree that it is an interesting area of study. And people, what I've heard similar to you who are able to do that, pretty much like the hallmark is it took them years, <laughs> not months, you know? Yeah. So I think there is some, some validity to what happens after a couple of years, you know, and I, it could be that there is probably changes. Mm -hmm. um, the hard part is like trying to actually study that. I mean, the closest we have is, you know, Jeff Bullock's faster study, who took, you know, already keto adapted athletes at a pretty high level, brought them into the lab, you know, stuck them with a bunch of biopsies and a bunch of other stuff. And, yeah, it was very interesting. They kind of rewrote the book on how much fat they were able to use. Granted, there are some debates about uh, pre-feeding with um, some fat and then trying to measure fat if people are in a high level of ketosis, the metabolic heart. But they did show that it's much higher than they've ever observed. The caveat with that particular study, though, and again, it's not a knock against the researchers at all, mm -hmm. is that they were running, I think, at like 62% of their VO2 max. So they could do that for hours at end, but no one who's a competitive cyclist is going to win at 62% of their VO2 max either. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's the downside of, you know, what was done in the study too. Yeah. And it may turn out that there's more than one way to skin this cat because the issue is sure. for people who've got an issue with carbs or maybe, maybe the issue is with burning fats and they're trying to maybe use a keto diet to reset their body. So right. that they can burn fats better, and what the and then they just need to figure out a way that they can get carbs in for the high uh, fuels because Glenn uses carbs mm -hmm. now. His body lets him add carbs back, and he then has the octane, the high octane fuel for when he needs that. Um, but if you do it too early in that keto adaptation process, then it wrecks you. <laughs> so there's this long process there. But I'm just wondering if there's more than one way to do it because my for my own self, just recently. I lost, uh, actually using your program, Mike, lost body fat. And I went from uh, using the Amazon Halo. So I don't know. It can't possibly be accurate because it's just photographs. <laughs> um, but, you know, it seems to match up pretty well when you look at like the, the photograph-based body fat. You know, he's like, this is what 20 looks like. And this right. is what 15 looks like. Anyway, so it matches up with that pretty well. I went from 20 two to 15 nice and my ability to deal with sugar carbohydrates got way better nice so i have i have to believe that the that for me even at fairly modest body fat levels i was having some interference with my organs with the fat that was accumulating uh you know underneath my uh muscle wall and, and so, you know, maybe somebody who's 30 only needs to get to 25 and then they get, uh, improvement. I had to go down pretty low, but I, I think that maybe I don't have the problem anymore as long as I keep my body fat 
at that level uh, or, or even better. So it may be that there's other ways to get at this issue of this metabolic flexibility where I want to be more like I was when I was a younger person. Yeah, and that's fascinating. That's one of the questions in the third I was kind of wrestling with too is that when we look at all the exactly your your case study, which is great, like you got the result you wanted, definitely worked 100%, right? So then research goons like I like sit around and drink too many beers and argue about like, well, what was the main mechanism, right? Because if we can figure out the mechanism, we can, you know, maybe do something else. And the hard part is that if you have weight loss and change of habits, it's like, what, what, what was the, the bigger driver, yeah. you know? And so I look for any research, I'm like, okay, so how would these two things not be coupled together? And I did find a couple studies using liposuction. So they took people and they reduced their body fat. Granted, it's liposuction, there's only so much you can take out. But now you have a person before and after that has substantially less amount of fat. And what, again, it's like one study in humans, but what they showed was they did see a big metabolic change per se. They did or didn't? They did not. Okay. So you could argue that, well, maybe they didn't remove enough fat. Maybe you've got, you know, stress from a procedure. Maybe it wasn't, you know, obviously visceral adipose tissue or where you pull fat from. Yeah. Um, But that's what I was thinking. Some preliminary data to show that maybe it's all the other adaptations. And in reality, it's probably a combination, right? Because we do know that if we look at, like my buddy, uh, Dr. Tommy Wood has talked about, everybody kind of has their own sort of like personal fat threshold, where once their body comp goes past a certain point, it's like this exponential thing. Like you see triglycerides, blood levels go wacky. You just see stuff starting to go off the rails. And then when their body comp gets down below a certain level, everything starts being, you know, all happy and hunky dory again, too. So mm-hmm. I think it's probably a combination, you know, of those different factors for sure. Okay. Well, cool. Well, so let what we were trying to do is come up with a list of the different variables of flexibility or yeah. elements of flexibility. And we had talked about fuels and being able to hold on to your muscles when you, cause you know, you don't need to lift heavy weights all the time, but you do sometimes. And so you yeah. want to hang on to your muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, the only, the other thing that occurred to me was, uh, listening to some, some of your other stuff was related to just sort of like managing your energy levels now, Mm -hmm. sort of independent of food type. So just this whole idea of, well, you know, you want to be high energy, some parts of the day and low energy, some parts of the day, you can't be high energy all the time and you're never going to sleep. Right. You can't be low energy all the time and you can't ever get a workout in. Yeah. So what, what else, what else would we talk about? Um, I mean, I would say related to that too, is just people's ability to manage their own state. I think a lot of people are probably too much leveraged on the biochemical regulation, which would be food or I sit here and like drink my coffee, um, (laughs) that kind of stuff. And that can work, but there's also movement. There's also like biopsychosocial stuff, just, distraction, doing something else. Um, And I think if people were taught those things, I think that their management of food and calories and everything else would be a lot better, right? And a lot of this is just kind of how we're trained as kids. Like, oh, you did go to the doctor's office. Let's go to Dairy Queen or, you know, wherever it is, right? We're kind of always taught that the biochemical reward is like the main thing. Um, So I think getting into other areas to kind of manage your own state and mood is like super helpful for people too. 
Well, that makes that makes really good sense. And I'll say also that you talked about sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, sleep is for me. Sleep is really one of the huge levers. I can I can yeah. lift the Empire State Building with the sleep lever. But it is there are parts of it that are very hard to manipulate, like what time you go to bed. Mm-hmm. But if you're a person like I have been, who has trouble staying asleep or where they wake up too early or, you know, going back to sleep. Well, that's, there's no part of my life that restricts me from if I could figure out how to stay asleep or go back to sleep better, that, that, that would be a problem. That would be all plus all excellent. And there are lots of things. Uh, in fact, I, I just had a Amy Bender, Dr. Amy Bender. I don't know if you know her, but mm-hmm. uh, on uh, the podcast, uh, a week ago, talking about sleep. And I, what I learned in your class and then with tools that from her and you and other people that I've been studying, I have gotten to where I'm, instead of almost always getting up in the middle of the night and then half the time not being able to fall back asleep, I'm almost always sleeping through the night now. Nice. That's awesome. So there's nobody like upset with me that I'm doing that. It's just that <laughs> I'm recovering better. I have more energy during the day. I mean, everything is better as a result. So there's, there's even in sleep, there's things you can do. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of never ending. I mean, I am one of those people for like, as long as I can remember, like if I look back at my lifting, you know, just training records and stuff, like I, I do better with total time in bed. If I'm training hard, eight to 10 hours, yeah. you know, like there's sometimes where it, it literally goes over like 10 hours, you know, especially in winter. Um, and I've tried everything, sleep quality, you name it. And it's, it's just a little bit higher. I mean, if my aerobic stuff is really poor, it gets even worse. Um, but even if that's pretty good, like, you know, now I'm averaging about eight and a half, nine, and that's pretty good. So I think everyone is a little bit different too. Uh, most people probably need seven to nine hours, but if you yeah. talk to even pretty high end athletes, it's not uncommon if they're allowed to sleep as much as they can. Like I know pretty high level athletes that sleep 10 hours a day and take a half hour nap after training. Granted they're, they don't have a job. I mean, that is their job. <laughs> they don't yeah. do anything else. Um, but yeah, I think it's variable and also quality is super important. But it also to remember that I went to the, um, the was it exercise and uh, neurosports conference a couple months ago. There was a researcher who gave a really good talk on sleep. And she was saying, she's like, if you fall asleep, you're as soon as your head hits the pillow and you don't remember waking up once until your alarm goes off. She's like, you're probably dramatically overtired. And if you don't remember anything, that's called a coma. And that's really bad. (laughs) He's like, it's normal for most people to wake up a few times during the night. That's completely 100% normal. So I think we've gotten to the point in society where it's almost like, oh, bro, if your head doesn't hit the pillow and you don't go instantly out within 30 seconds and you woke up during the night, oh, your sleep is horrible, you bad human being. You know, and that's like not the case at all. I mean, there's even cultures where they would get up at, three and four in the morning, sit around by the campfire and then go back to bed, you know? Right. So it's, right. it's even, I think we've put sleep on almost such a high pedestal yeah. that we've made it almost unrealistic for some people. And then they start getting worried about it, right? They're like, Oh my gosh, oh, I woke yeah. up during the night 
And then you start getting anxiety ridden about it. And then you sleep worse. And then you're worried about not sleeping. And yeah. Oh, and my, my watch told me that I is going to oh, keep yeah. track of how I slept. Yeah. And it says I slept badly. So I, even though I felt good, now I feel right. terrible because my watch told me that I didn't sleep good. All right. So let's <laughs> move past that. Uh, I wanted to at least talk about this idea of, I guess in your world, the, the issue is the, the guy's doing strength training or, or physique training mm-hmm. are not doing enough cardio because maybe they're worried that it's going to reduce their gains or, or, or that kind of a thing. But what you recommend is that they do some cardio because having a better a cardiovascular system actually helps you with having a healthy body and, uh, and keeping your, letting your muscles recover from the hard work that they're doing in order to be stronger and, and make bigger muscles. And Glenn, in my world of uh, endurance athletes, I think it goes the opposite way where they yep. don't do any strength training. Right. And so it's all cardiovascular endurance work. It's not terrible to have a resting heart rate in the thirties or, you know, or 40, um, you know, and, and, a, and a nice big heart with a strong amount of uh, blood volume being pumped at each beat. But you know, if you're, if your body is now all strong only on one dimension, you know, and you can barely stand up straight anymore, well, you know, talking about living a long time as a strong, healthy person, you know, maybe you're not working in your in your own best interest. Yeah, and the reality is it's it's probably somewhere in the middle, right? So the handful of endurance athletes I worked with, you know, mostly cyclists, I'm like, okay, so that's just the first part is usually convincing them that speed and power actually matters if they're going to be competitive or want to do better, right? So I did a volunteered for the Ram, the race across America many years ago. It was a four-person team, so I was one of the volunteers on it. Your listeners probably are familiar with it. We started in San Diego, California, and that year we finished in Atlantic City, New Jersey. So someone is riding their bike 24 hours a day, six, six seven days a week, and you're alternating. And so we're doing two teams. And so there's two guys out kind of alternating back and forth. And they're, I mean, they're riding pretty fast. I mean, you're getting, you know, 19 and a half, 20 miles per hour on average over the course of the entire race. But the part that is weird is that it's a race. So we're like literally in the middle of Nebraska somewhere. And one of our guys is riding, he's getting kind of bored and there's no drafting. So if you ride up on someone, you can ride up to him, but then you have to pass them or you have to drop back. You can't draft. So he's bored. And so we're on the radio behind him watching him. He's like, hey, this guy in front, he's like, I'm bored. I'm just going to screw with him a little bit. I'm going to ride up on him like I'm going to pass him. I'm just going to drop back for a while just to see what he does. <laughs> we're like, all right, sure, man, whatever, you know. And so he does that a few times. And he's like, he's like, ah, should I pass him now? We're like, sure. So he rides by him and we're going by in the, the chase vehicle and you, you see our guy, Greg, go by and you see the other guy, I think it was a rider from Austria. And you can see the look on his face going like, no, I don't want this guy to pass me because it's a race, right? No one wants to get just blown by. And you see him just drop the hammer and he's trying as hard as he can and he just can't keep up at all. And the look on his face when he got passed was just utterly demoralized. And then you realize they're like, oh yeah. Even like on a seven-day event, if you would have asked me beforehand, I would have said, ah, speed and power doesn't matter that much. And you're like, yeah, it does matter in particular cases, or you're going up a mountain pass or things like that. 
Yeah. Um, so first is just convincing him that, yeah, it does matter. It doesn't mean that that's the main thing you have to train for. You're not going to be a sprint cyclist. I get it. The second part then is training to put them in the opposite position to make sure they're a functional human being, right? Because a lot of cycling is bent over, you know, very kyphotic, you know, position that I have a hard time of getting stuck in myself. So a lot of uh, working your arm behind your body, extension work, rowing, not necessarily because it's going to make you a better cyclist, but it's going to keep you all in one piece and not have your shoulders and neck feel like they're going to want to like kill you. Yeah, um, and yeah. then after that is also, okay, if we can just make you stronger, let's not talk about adding body weight because that freaks competitive cyclists out and they'll spend thousands of dollars to save two ounces on their component. <laughs> yes. um, if we can just get you stronger per pedal stroke, you're literally going to go farther per stroke. And like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. Um, and it doesn't take that much work just because they, you know, a lot of times they're just weaker because it's not the main thing that they're doing. Yeah. Um, then once you get that through, then they see increase in performance and then they're like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah, it does help. <laughs> yeah, well, cool. Well, so uh, was there anything else, any other areas uh, where, you know, you want to be high sometimes and low sometimes? Um, in terms of just nutrition or training or just this whole idea of metabolic and physiologic, uh, flexibility. Yeah. I mean, another plug I would give for physiologic flexibility is the same idea of taking metabolic flexibility, um, but applying it to you as an actual organism. Okay. So I think the biggest one that's easy for people to play around with is temperature difference. So probably having a period of time where you want to be a little bit warmer, especially if you're going to exercise in a warm climate. Uh, it can be super useful. And then probably getting a little bit colder can be useful, right? So your body temperature is going to stay about the same. We know that if you get a few degrees above or below, you're going to be in a world of hurt. But those systems are also very trainable. Right? Anyone who's done a long race like you guys have done and you are not used to the climate, right? So competitive people who are not used to racing in Kona will get their ass absolutely kicked when they go out there, even if they're very in shape, because they're literally not prepared to dissipate that amount of heat unless they've been doing stuff to get ready for it. That's right. an extreme example. Um, but I think being able to be more adaptable is something you can train by maybe doing a sauna a couple days a week, you know, even just taking a cold shower at the end. And I think you're also training your brain to do something that's a little bit hard, just like exercise, but you know, there's a long-term benefit because the little reptilian limbic part of your brain says, Nope, probably in cold water. That's a stupid idea because we could die. Oh, yeah, that actually is correct. If you screw up, you can definitely die of hypothermia. That is a real thing. However, 30 seconds in 40-degree water in a safe environment, you can get in and out, probably not going to happen, right? But that little part of your brain is still like, no, bad idea. Don't do this, right? Just like exercise. Over many years, you get accustomed to it. You can think of the long-term benefit and still do it, but I think you can apply those concepts to temperature. So getting a little bit warmer at times and then getting a little bit colder at times, I think has benefits to it. Yeah, that makes perfectly good sense. And just the psychological benefit of knowing that you can tolerate some discomfort. Yes. You know, I have found some benefit in that because you know there was a time where I was just so miserable and cold. I just, I hated it. I just, I dreamed of moving to a place that had no cold. And then... I don't even know how I managed to talk myself into it, but I started taking cold showers mm. in the morning. And let me tell you, well, if you've done it, then you know how horrible <laughs> yeah. 
It is. That doesn't feel uh, good. <laughs> it really, it really is a terrible thing. But after a while, you kind of, you know, you can you can tolerate it, and then after a while, you start looking forward to it. But the thing that happens is that suddenly the cold didn't bother me anymore. Yeah, because uh, I knew, oh, it's just cold. I'll be warm eventually. It, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. The cold is super fascinating because I took a whole 15.6 cubic in freezer, sealed it and filled it full of cold water in my garage so I can do cold water immersion up to my neck, even <laughs> wow. as a six foot three person. Um, and so I've done it for up until recently I was gone, but I did it for consistently for about a year and a half. You know, yeah. COVID, it wasn't going anywhere. And you know, I started at 50 degrees, got up to doing 50 degrees for like six minutes and eventually got down to like 38 degrees for five minutes was like the longest I ever got. But that sounds cold. It's very cold. Yeah. And even 50 degrees to people who are not used to it is cold, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't sound that bad, but it, yeah. The, the weird part was that I never woke up in the morning and when I was standing to get in the freezer, I was never like, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> Because you know it's it's going to suck. But you train yourself because exactly what you said. You think about the benefit when you're done. It's like, oh, I'm so happy I did this. It's only a few minutes. It's not that long. And I'll feel better once I'm I'm done. But it's a weird thing where like I thought like at least a year into it, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's just something I do. It's really not. No, it sucked every time. I got <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, so... As we start to wrap up here, I wanted to throw another concept out that I've heard you talk about and, yeah. and heard others talk about it using different words that I think is really important, especially to this audience, the older athlete, because, you know, the older athlete is by definition an older person and, and it's a person who is healthy. And so they expect to get older still. But as you get older, there are always, I mean, well, let's just say almost always bumps in the road, bumps in the health road, you know, serious illnesses or bad falls or, you know, whatever. And this idea of headroom, physiologic headroom, where you've got some extra capacity to deal with stuff that's out of your normal day. I mean, even out of your normal, like I work out hard some days, if you've got some extra room and you have an injury or an illness that's bad, your body is in a way better position to survive it. Oh yeah. What, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, there's good studies looking at body mass in severe trauma and even like in burn patients or car accidents or cancer if you start with more mass, especially muscle, even sometimes just body mass, depending upon what disease and what process, um, your outcome is definitely going to be better. So I would extend that even beyond kind of what you were saying. And I think more physiologic flexibility, if you're better at tolerating temperature difference, you have a built up sort of an adaptive reserve in that area that I think is going to transfer. You know, if you're yeah. stronger, that's going to, you know, transfer to, uh, if you look at hip fractures, right? No one just goes Whoop, and like tips over real slow like a weeble, all right? It's something that's going to happen super fast. Yeah. And people think, oh, that's a balance thing. And it is, but it's a muscle reactivity that you've lost speed and power, right? Because that's a reflex where you're going to try to catch yourself. And if you've watched, unfortunately, older people, the reflex is still kind of there, 
but they just don't have the strength to hold themselves and then they kind of fall over. So I think a lot of the the things we sort of think and take for granted are actually really trainable and then yeah. you can get better at it. And so if something does happen because something will happen, that's just the reality of life that you're going to be in a better position to handle that acute stressor that's going to come your way. Yeah. Right. So this whole idea of metabolic and physiologic flexibility, I think also works to build that headroom. Yes. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a high end athlete. You just have to not be uh, a sedentary person and you end up with this extra capacity to, to soak up problems when they arise. You know, even if it's just muscle mass, if you have more muscle mass, when you're injured or sick and you're in bed and you're losing your muscle mass, well, you started with more. So you'll have more when you get back rather yeah. than you, you've lost essentially everything if you started with so little. So there, there's a, there's so many good reasons. It's not just so that you can go to, you know, some world level competition for, you know, age groupers. It's so that you can have a good life and live a good, a long time in a healthy way and be a strong person. And you don't have to do, this is what I always say. So you won't, you don't know why I'm chuckling. Uh, you don't have to do the bus tour of Italy. You can do the bike tour of Italy when you're 80 years old. Oh yeah. Yeah. And even like, with temperature, which I appear to be harping on, is that I remember going to my grandparents' side on my dad's side. Their house would be like 85 degrees, like no matter what time of the season it was. And mm -hmm. it never made sense to me as a kid. And then when my grandma got older, the same thing. It would be, you know, 75 degrees where she was staying and she had like two blankets on, right? Because I think you're losing that ability to self-regulate temperature and mm -hmm. because you haven't had any exposure to those. So I think of as you get older, the, the analogy I think about is be very conscious of the stimulus that you expose yourself to in controlled doses. And a little bit more variable in different areas, you can do that. You'll keep that physiologic headroom or even expand it a little bit. And that's just going to give you function as you age, which is what yeah. everyone really wants, right? To me, longevity is actually function. If we can translate what those functions actually look like, we can train for it now, and then we can keep doing that, and we're going to be just a lot better when we're older. Yeah, I think those are the right words. It's that uh, you know your body is going to settle into whatever it is it needs, mm -hmm. and so if you if you make your body really comfortable, it doesn't have to worry about anything, then that'll be all it can deal with yeah. eventually. Yeah, literally. And unfortunately, the downside of aging is that those processes, some of them happen a little bit faster. You know, so you probably can't take three weeks off of strength training and expect to be at similar levels if you're quite a bit older, right? You're going to lose a little bit more of that. Yeah. And at some point, you're probably just going to be fighting to maintain what you had before. But when you compare that to people who are normally losing real fast, you're still going to be much farther ahead. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank mm -hmm. you for the good questions. It was a good discussion. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what should uh, we tell people how they could find you? Uh, I mean, we can put stuff in the show notes too. Cool. Yeah, the best place is probably just through the newsletter. Like most information I send out, probably 90% goes through the newsletter. 
So if you just go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com, there'll be a spot up there where you can get on the wait list. That'll put you on to the newsletter. And just send me a note that you heard me on the podcast there. We'll send you a free gift. So flexdiet.com is probably the best place. And I've joined the 21st century a little bit and started doing more stuff on Instagram now. So you can find me on Instagram at uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, which is just D-R-M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. So Dr. Mike T. Nelson on Instagram, actually. Excellent. Well, congratulations on uh, entering the modern world. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I still feel like I'm using it wrong. I'm like trying to explain concepts to people on like a pictorial format, but uh, <laughs> people seem to like it. And if it helps educate more people, I'm all down for whatever works. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again. This has been great. Keep up the good work, man. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good stuff. I really enjoyed right, it. Good one. Oh, thank yeah. you. All righty. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in to my discussion about metabolic and physiologic flexibility with Dr. Mike T. Nelson. And thanks to Dr. Mike for taking some time to help us out. You can find more information about Dr. Mike in the show notes. And if you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.